Well, I'm really excited uh, to have a very special, wise, accomplished, experienced, and very spirit-led guest with us today here on True Trauma and Theology. And uh, we've got with us today Steve Staten. He is very um, accomplished and has been around for a long time. I think one of the things that I'm excited about is a young teacher and you know therapist and someone who works with trauma and so forth is I'm really interested in the historical aspect you know you, you in order to sort of trace where you're going to go you've got to understand where you've been and this uh, guest today is an archive of information and uh, Steve is a consultant for the churches uh, works currently now with different churches and in very intimate situations very uh, important signature type moment situations for many of our, our churches he's been an elder a teacher and an evangelist um, currently has a um, uh, has a theology, a master's in theology and conflict management. So he's got two masters, uh, worked as an engineer previously. And before we came on, he said he was kind of like a social engineer. I look forward to him explaining that a little bit as well. Currently also works with, and there's just so many things that he does, works with the Disciples Center for Education. And I am so excited because he's in the crosshairs of helping uh, our worldwide fellowship of churches become more equipped, not just in terms of us being top heavy, but he wants to help distribute it. And I'm just so excited. Been a disciple for about 40 years. Steve, welcome to the show today. What an honor, Kyle. Thank you for including me on this series. I mean, your lineup of those you previously had interviewed is a little bit intimidating. So I'm just glad to be here. <laughs> You're one of them. You're one of them, brother. All right, what I first want to do is the same thing I do every time, and it's just a very good way to get acquainted with you. And I'd like for you to share a little bit about your conversion. Okay. Oh, so uh, I was raised Roman Catholic, very, very committed Roman Catholic. And it was a good experience. I, have, I did not leave the Catholic Church because of a rejection of Catholicism from personal experience. It, it was more that where I was headed was a zenith of the best of what Catholicism brought, but there was something more that I needed. Uh, the priest that I had most in my influence was the kind of relationship where we could go take a walk instead of going into the confessional booth. And I was a lay minister in college, uh, administered communion, ashes on Ash Wednesday. My last Sunday as a senior, I uh, did the homily. So I went to staff meetings. I was so in it. But becoming the first of like 44 cousins on one side to leave the Catholic Church happened for this reason. I had no power in my life. Um, I was just looking for all sorts of ways to feed my inner being that were not spiritual, not biblical, not Catholic, not Christian, and it was empty. So I was door knocked by a Jehovah's Witness. And they challenged the daylights out of me. Like it was very much challenging Catholicism. I thought, well, I can't even defend what I don't know. I'm just, you know, like a lot of Catholics, we just do the catechism, do our classes and do the stations of the cross and liturgy and all that. So I went out and got a Bible and I was blown away by how awesome the Bible was. Then I got door knocked again by two brothers and one black, one white in DeKalb, Illinois. And they invited me to a soul talk is what they called them back then. 
And uh, this is the way that I remember it. I had a choice of going to the Soul Talk on a Thursday night or watching Mork and Mindy. <laughs> so I thought, well, if I'm going to go to this Soul Talk, I better leave early or I'll be tempted. So I got to this thing almost a half hour early, you know, and because I'll be tempted to stay home and watch TV. So anyway, I go to it and it was just an incredible experience. Marty Fuqua was leading discussions and he immediately made the gospels come alive. I think the first one was on the parable of the sower and I was hooked and I didn't miss a beat after that. I would say about six, seven weeks later, I made the decision to be baptized. A huge controversy in my family, obviously, because this gets mm. Catholic background, but uh, the biggest and best decision I ever made. Oh, wow. I love it. I always love to hear people's conversion and just how God continues to convert us even. He's not done. He just continues. And it's almost like we have a series of conversions even after our initial conversion. Right. Sure. That's right. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you had a, a few of those as well. Over 40 years, I can just imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so I want to get into, there's a lot of content, and I just want to say to all of our viewers today, I am super excited to get into, I've got a lot, so this may be a little bit longer today, but there's uh, quite a bit that is important that we get into. I've got an article that you sent me, and um, we just kind of get into a couple of different themes from the article. I understand that uh, I think it's going to be something that's possibly going to be, going to be coming out, um, but what I want to do is just have you talk a little bit Give us almost like a primer. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Give, give us a primer. And I've got some very specific questions for you as it relates to the generational tension that we currently find ourselves in. And there's quite a bit of it. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. So, so a couple of years ago, I was asked to write an article on the four things I would tell my 30-year-old self. Yes. 60. Yes. You know? And uh, so I did that. It was a blog for some disciple over in Europe, and I did it. And then I thought this year, I'm going to do the article, The Four Things I Often Get Asked by Gen Y and Gen Z Christians. And the context of that is I've interviewed over 850 people in my consultations uh, in the last eight years. Um, I've surveyed many more. I did a uh, series that was intergenerational back in 2016. Uh, at that time, Gen Zs were not on my radar. So it was really uh, seniors, boomers, Gen X, Gen Y. But, uh, and I sent it out to about 720 people, 110 people responded. I categorized their responses by generation and I saw themes. And of course, I got three daughters between 31, 36 uh, that, you know, classic millennials. And so I think about this a lot because there's the phrase, the lost generation is used in two ways. First of all, it's used in the, uh, even the broader evangelical Christian world, that that category of younger Gen Xers, older millennials have lost their faith or never received it, or the duns or nuns or whatever. But the International Church of Christ has the lost generation of those who lost their faith around the time of the crisis of 2003 and so forth. So uh, uh, what I want to do is just connect and build bridges, you know, conversations to figure out uh, how to get us all talking and receiving the insight from across our generation. So 
the, I think the four questions were, how should I address dysfunction in the church with our leaders? Younger people see things and we should not be surprised when we were young, we saw things, right? Um, how can I introduce different ideas to our local congregation? You know, especially if you're feeling stuck. And then third was, uh, why is unity often conflated with uniformity among senior leaders? And then fourth, how should Christians engage in society with matters of justice? And I've done some blogs on, or uh, some Zoom presentations on these issues over the past year and a half. So uh, that's my article and it comes out this week. It's on bridginginternational.com under slash blog. Can I ask you a couple specific questions about it? Are you open? Are you up for that? Yeah, sure am. Absolutely. All right. Can I ask you about the nudge? And I'm going to focus on the nudge first because I thought it was I thought it was tremendously insightful, and it's helpful as we look at the different ways that there are stuck people. There's like four ways people get stuck, and then you talk about the nudge. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Okay, so. A very poignant moment in August of 2010, in my first class at Lipscomb called a survey of conflict management, Dr. Steve Joyner, which I still uh, refer to as an advisor, he's been very helpful to the International Churches of Christ, but he had this uh, question uh, asked by somebody in the, the class, and it was very cross-generational, it was, you know, Gen Y's all the way up, he said, somebody said, how do we deal with dysfunction in the church with our leaders? And I thought, wow, what a great question. You know, how do you press on it? What do you do? And he said, there's four responses. And he was so quick. He was ready for the question. So I'm going to read it from the article. When a church is stuck and you're not able to get the leaders to see what's really going on, you have four choices. Do nothing, leave, blow it up, or constantly nudge. Doing nothing can leave both the result of I wish I would have kind of thing, you know, that regret of, oh, I could have done something. Um, blowing it up leads to unpredicted outcomes for everyone, including blowback to those who lit the fuse. And he would talk about those who flame out and they go down with the ship because they didn't do the right way of handling it. But he said, but nudging can eventually wear down the establishment. Sometimes a series of nudges from a variety of sources opens the system to change. Multiple nudges eventually make the pain of the status quo greater than the pain of change. That's when good things begin to occur and there are many ways to nudge. And boom, you know, it's like, aha, you know, fireworks. And I'm like, so here's the only other thing that happened in the, in the class, Kyle. And so he said, Staten can talk to you about blowing things up. And he referred to the ICOC. He introduced the class to what happened in 03, the Henry Crete letter. And he described why what Henry did was not the appropriate thing for the moment. Mm. A version of that was appropriate. There was something that Henry was onto, obviously. We know that from historical uh, reflection. But there was he flamed out this was uh, blowing things up and there was a better way. And so the course, the class, we actually talked about that. But what's far more important than leaving, you know, doing nothing and blowing things up is the nudge, as you talked about. Mm, very beautiful. 
And then you have this idea of converger, convergers versus divergers. Can you share just a little bit about that? Okay, so there are people in the Bible that were really instrumental in building. Um, and that would be, you know, Moses. That would be the men behind uh, the building of the tabernacle and signing people and training people that either had skills or helping them get the skills to develop the tabernacle, which was basically, we could call it a moving worship center. Mm. And it was, I think it was a massive undertaking. Diverger says, hey, we're not in a place to build something. We're in a place to cut loose, to do something different than what we're doing right now. And, and a good example, there's, I think, two come to mind right away. One is uh, the Passover in the time of Hezekiah. Uh, Israel was all messed up. It was crazy religiously. That's the place where we get Samaria in the New Testament. By that time, they were very uh, corrupt theologically. Uh, Judah was really stuck. Um, but basically, they had a Passover at the wrong time of the year, not honoring many of the regulations. It was very sloppily executed. They invited Israel in, which was itself would be controversial. These, it would be like, uh, hey, let's plan a worship with the Church of Christ, the Lutherans, the Catholics, the Presbyterians, and you know, whatever, and not addressing the theological differences. But he did it. And then Hezekiah prayed, acknowledging to the Lord that this wasn't ideal, but can you bless it anyway? And something magnificent really happened. It ended up being really the second, maybe third greatest Passover in the, all the Old Testament. But it was thinking outside the box. I think when Paul and Barnabas went to Antioch and did what they did without running it by Jerusalem first, you know, uh, that was outside the box. That was a divergent thinking. But it was necessary too. The, the, the event had to happen. So somebody was pushing and eventually they converted these Gentiles and then they had to go back and, you know, balance all the tensions with those who came from a more uh, conservative end on things. So we need both. The problem that happens in churches, and I've seen this in consultations, is that when somebody's only focused on building, growth, growth, building, structure, hierarchy, direction. Sometimes they're building on something that's faulty and it's not really working. Hmm. And we need a new thing in there. And the other problem is, I don't like anything done in the past. Let's try this. And they're restless. And they're always kind of looking to innovate and evolve and try new things. And they're not getting anything done. And the, the tension between, is between uh, what got us here is tried and true, true. And then the other side is, yeah, but what got us here won't get us there. Mm -hmm. We need something new. And, and uh, I had one church that I consulted for. The tension was so significant that the leadership group of 26 size, there was like 24 of them were progressive and restless and didn't want to do what we did in the past. And the other couple were conservative. But the church had a strong conservative element. And eventually it just had another crisis because it didn't take my direction. You know, I'm going to put it boldly to make sure the leadership reflected the, the good of both tensions. Right. We need to get back to the roots of discipling and structure and organization and get involved in people's lives. But we also 
uh, need to be in the 21st century, you know, and uh, they were too focused on being in the 21st century and, and it didn't work out. Absolutely. You answered my other question, which was the tension between what got us here versus the tried and true. And I, I think there's a couple of things that I, so there's a book called Oregon Trail Theology. It's interesting. It has this dilemma in, in really what churches have. And really it's this idea of the pioneer versus the settler. And so you have one part of, we want to go West. It's, we want to be a pioneer sort of dilemma. And then the other folks are the settlers, which is, okay, we've gone West. We've, did, we've done that. We need to set roots. And I think even in the Old Testament, you see that always as well, that kind of that, that push and pull. It's interesting. It's, it, it's, it can be traumatic when you become overly pioneer or overly settle set right. as a settler in your in your mindset and what i'm hearing you say is that when you go to situations and you see a congregation that's overly pioneer versus overly settler yeah. you try to engage that in a very compassionate but truthful way right is that always easy does that is that sort of like butter or is there some friction with that there, there's friction but i have a little bit of easier job because i'm not in the system i'm not a source of controversy so if I want to introduce a concept before we get to the issue, uh, people will hear it. So if I say, hey, brothers and sisters, we need a both and thinking. Mm -hmm. And uh, let me demonstrate it. And I have actually walked people through uh, negotiations and collaboration exercises that are just fun, safe, unrelated to church to demonstrate why sometimes somebody wants are going to fight over an orange but somebody actually wants the core of the orange and somebody else wants the, you know, the skin, you know, mm -hmm. but sometimes people are so focused on fighting, they can't see a both hand. And there's uh, all sorts of ways to get that point across before you get to the tension that exists in that church. And a real big one right now, I mean, this is big, is uh, the fact that there are a lot of disciples that are, don't want the spectator church walk into the big events, and then go home. You know, that be entertained, hear a 45-minute sermon. Um, it's, there's kind of a done that. They want to be more participant. But there are people that love that format, the mm. big box church format, and they get a lot out of it. The problem is with both ends of this is they judge the other side. Wow. And, and that you can really build a very good case for either one wow. or both of them. And uh, that, that's, that's a real big deal. So uh, back in 2016, I um, was doing a workshop for the REACH conference called Becoming Wavemakers. And I think we had a role play where there was that tension. We created a fictional town with a fictional uh, geography where that became an issue. But I've since had to do that uh, multiple times in my consultations because it's real. <laughs> it's real, you know. That role play was based off a of real life, brother. <laughs> There's no doubt. Oh, you wouldn't believe how many times I changed the names of the city. You know, I might call it Gotham City and, you know, it, it's just, I'll, I'll do whatever. <laughs> Well, what I want to do is I want to transition and I want to now interject specifically the trauma component in. And what I want to do for a moment for our, for our viewers, listeners, is I want to just re-describe trauma and what trauma does. And now we're going to get into the next phase of, of this. Trauma 
is so limiting because what trauma does is it doesn't allow us to have a both and. Again, our brain, our left and right part of the brain, um, the thinking and feeling, we can get stuck in the thinking part or the feeling part. And when we get stuck in the thinking, we can think, but we can't feel, or we get into the feel part, we can feel, but we can't think. When a critical, when a signature moment happens, trauma comes along, it creates this either or, but also what it does is it narrows our field of view. And then what happens is whatever it is that injured us or whatever caused the trauma, our brain orients towards that and now makes that the threat. And then what it does, and this is where I think so many people in fellowships are stuck and have uh, these different sort of triggers, is it overdevelops a reaction to that thing. Right. So now, as we think about what trauma does, and again, trauma limits our field of view, our goal in all of this, in order to have a both and, you have to widen your field of view. In other words, what trauma does is it just creates that, that one target. And in many ways, when we heal, we have to have the goal then at that point to be able to accept the both and, which is very difficult, very yeah. challenging to create and accept a both and. And so one of the things I wanna just talk about you had mentioned, again, that was a milestone moment for our churches in 2003 when that, and I would say that was a fracturing moment. And that put, that siloed people, for some people, it put them on a moat. Some people yeah. were un, um, not just uncomfortable, but uncomforted. And um, with trauma, this is key. It's not just about what happens. It's about what happens next. Yeah, it's one of the most important things about trauma. And so when you look at why people and again, this is a very broad question. Why so many people, it seems are still so stuck. What 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 comes to mind as some of the reasons for since 2003, what has created that stuckness for people? Okay, well, there's a lot of places to go with that. I would say First of all, one of the ways that I've seen for people to come back from trauma is the ability, often it takes a third person, an outsider in this story, mm -hmm. but is to see their voice in the narrative. Oh. And uh, so, so I've had 21 consultations this century, okay? And in the 21, a little bit over half have been under intense circumstances. And uh, there's... And sometimes there's mental illness, sometimes there's abuse, sometimes there's power struggles, but people have saturated lenses, mm. uh, can be at the intense opposite ends of how to see the same events, you know. But if I have a team, so it's not about Steve Staten, but it's about a couple of people that bring diversity to fleecing out their stories, their perspectives, looking at data, sometimes uh, documents even, but we eventually can create a narrative where people go, oh, I hear my voice in that. Yeah. I was taken seriously. And then somebody from the other end of the spectrum, similarly. Then we can create a safe space for those people to eventually enter into the same conversation face to face, you know. And uh, so that helps. Um, especially if there's like this major unresolved moment, they feel like, okay, we're going to actually be able to go somewhere. But why are people still stuck? Maybe from the events of the past, it could be that they haven't had the, the mentoring, counseling, shepherding, 
to walk through all that, to unpack it. Um, I'm a big believer in reading. Mm. Some of my best disciples are people I've never met in this world. Mm. Some of them are deceased. (laughs) Some of them died before I was born. (laughs) So uh, being able to look at things in my life with an outsider's perspective, which could come from living mentors, shepherds, friends, uh, guides, but also can come from really uh, great books that deal with the dark place of the soul, that sort of thing. So I think if we were more of a reading church, it would help. Mm. If it could help to process it. Um, our, uh, I, th- I think that's a big piece of it. Love it. Love the answer. And I appreciate that because it's such a broad answer or question that as you'd mentioned, there's so many different veins that you would have to travel to because it's not just about one thing. And I agree with that. And I think part of this stuckness comes from the next question, which is the issue of identity. So when I think of what gives a movement an identity, when I think of what gives a movement an identity, um, when I think of what gives people an identity, um, a lot of it can come from leadership and so forth like that, but there is, uh, there's kind of a, like a personality, like a group think. This is what sets us apart. And if that thing gets fractured, then what it is it, what is it that sets us apart? And do we have, is our, is part of our identity about the difference? So if we can't draw those differences so much the way we used to, or whatever it may be, is it difficult to form an identity? What do you think has made it so difficult? for people, for fellowships, to really grasp an effective identity? Yeah, I'm definitely ready to answer that one because um, in 2004, uh, as many people know, there was a conference between the mainline representatives and ICOC representatives in Abilene. And I ended up sitting real high up in the bleachers all by myself. There were, there were not a whole lot of people from our family of churches there, probably less than 60, I don't know. I ended up sitting by myself and I heard people talking about the ICOC in a positive way. These were mainline people. And, and they were disappointed that their tradition had disparaged the good parts of ours. And mm. one of the things that happened at that event that I heard loud and clear publicly, but even in private conversations is guys don't give up that go anywhere, do anything, give up everything thing. Cause that is a Jesus thing that is in the Bible. Don't give that up. We lost it. Keep it. So I continue to be connected to uh, people in the stone Campbell, the restoration tradition over the next number of years, and I frequently heard that. So in 2007, uh, we had an event in Chicago. I can't remember the name of it, but I brought in uh, Andy Fleming to help coordinate this. So we, we uh, developed further from the do anything, give up everything. Uh, so go anywhere, do anything, give up everything. We added one called become whatever. Mm. And we identified four callings, all four of those, that existed in both the Old Testament and in the New. We wow. actually had a, a quiet time series that I can circulate on this whole idea that there is this trait in our fellowship uh, to credit the founders of our fellowship um, of this radicalness that we actually see in the Bible. 
we are losing that piece. Uh, not entirely, not wholesale, but it's recapturable. So go anywhere, go on a mission field, do anything, sacrifice, talk to your boss, create a blog, uh, you know, start a conference center, whatever, you know, give up everything, make a lot of money, give it all to the kingdom of God, and then become whatever. And that is a person who's willing to suffer, experience uh, horrible things, you know, as many people in the Bible did, but to be a demonstration of how to respond to these various kinds of sufferings. And I would rather be known by that than baptism, to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> man, I tell you, you kind of pierce through stuff, man. I just love it. Your wisdom is, it's experience-based. It's not just in a book and so forth. You've got so, you've got throwaway comments, brother. I just, this is amazing. I, one of the things that I think as I've done my research a bit, and I'm, 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 I'm going to do more on it when I have more time. By the year 1990, Christianity Today had reported that there were over 500 mega plans to evangelize the world by the year 2000. Wow. And so what's interesting is, okay, so what happens if that doesn't happen? What is the theology behind baptizing the world in a generation? Um, it's, it, it, when you look at the theology, it's actually quite concerning. <laughs> And then, um, then after that, okay, so then what generation are you using to, to help accomplish that? Well, you're using the baby boomer generation, right? which the research is very clear that when it came to parenting and being professionals, they have quite a bit of disappointment. That is the quote unquote, and it's been said in many different research articles, that is the generation that was in many ways, the not failures, but there were a lot of failed expectations for the baby boomer generations. I have a Christian counseling book called Baby Boomer Blues. <laughs> and I look forward to at some point uh, doing some stuff. Uh, we might do something, who knows, but on, on the, really what the dilemma is for the baby boomer generation. And I just want to talk about some of the angst for a moment. Uh, so you've got the younger generation. There's many different ways. The baby bus generation, generation X, Y, Z. There's so many different ways to label it. But then you really you have the older generation, the builder generation. Right. And it's to some degree that you have two movements in one, right? I, I've sat down with leaders with their kids, and they talk about when people used to be disappointed when they couldn't go on a mission team. And then their kids are like, wait, what? It's such a different culture. And again, right. we're not, there's not like this, let's baptize everyone by the year 2030 push. We don't have that sort of as our identity. No. So when we talk about that tension and when you talk about the younger and the older, what are some of the, the, the themes that you're seeing in terms of tension between the older and younger generation that concern you? Well, it is a little bit between the, the converger and the diverger. Piece, the builder and the deconstructor, the, the solution person versus the question person and mm. so forth, you know. Um, I have an exercise that I've done with a few churches, you know, where I, I meet with like 30 staff people and, and paint a picture of a world that both the young and the old can agree to. And so we would say, what if in the year 2040, we had thousands of churches they shared the core identity, core connection, cooperated, problems were solved collaboratively. We were at the front of justice issues on the planet. We were doing what the early church did. 
you know, who invented, invented hospitals were in front of adoption and suicide and abortion, all these things. And we were the 21st century version of that. And we were becoming advisors to government officials because they wanted to have what we had in the church and their cities and so forth. And I said, if we had all that in 2040, let's ask ourselves, what do you think we did between 2020 and 2040? Wow. And so what, how did we get there? And so what's happened, Kyle, is the 23-year-old staff person and the 59-year-old staff person are looking at the same situation, a positive situation, thinking, okay, here's what I think we probably did to get there. So they're kind of reverse engineering a success and so we're now creating a conversation that's very both andish, mm-hmm. you know. And so then what we would do is say, "What do you think these people under twenty-seven bring uniquely, specially? What about the next group up? What do they bring specially? How do you think we got into these uh, multi-ethnic communities and got their attention?" And so all of a sudden, you just the, the brain synapses are going in directions that they've never been before. Uh, now, that's just a really great moment, Kyle, that you can have in a staff session like that. But it has to be followed up with what are we going to do to make sure we develop the skill sets, roadmaps, pathways okay. to do that sort of thing. But it does show us that whether you're 23 or whether you're 70, it is the same kingdom. And there's a core thing of what we would describe as success that we can agree upon. One of the things that's important about trauma that I always ask people uh, and whatever it is, is what is the threat? So if I'm talking with someone, let's say someone's older or younger, and I'll ask both generations, okay, what, what, what's the threat here? Okay. What, what do you, it's not just what's the, you know, what are you afraid of, which that's real, but what, what trauma does, and especially when we are in a survival state long enough, is it, it, it works off of threat. If something feels threatened and then that's where we start to see these you know hyper arousal responses in, in in the kingdom with people is that when our brain sort of thinks in terms of threat again it's working over it's working off of something that's overdeveloped and is at this point obsolete <laughs> yeah, but right. our brain isn't really going to sort of sort that out because in survival mode our brain you know in, in terms of our prefrontal cortex amygdala it's all just sloshed around so my question is this Based off of your experience, which is pretty robust, what are some of the fears that the older generation has or some of the the threats that they feel that is present in the younger generation? Okay, so older generation people, and I definitely identify with this uh, irrational fear, okay? We care a lot about our legacy. Mm. Like what we've contributed not wanting it to see see it destroyed or lost. And that uh, at our, uh, in our obituary and at our funeral, uh, there's not much to say because what we developed and built is gone. That's, oh. That is paralyzing to people that can't go, wait a minute, that's irrational, okay? But I identify with wanting my legacy to count is a little bit more of a male issue from talking to women mm-hmm. uh, than it is with women. I think it, that's a cultural, patriarchal paradigm, but we can, in my generation, go, oh, no, we're going to lose the church. 
they're, these people, they're, they're not protecting it. You know, they're going to go with the cultural winds of the day, you know, mm-hmm. they're going to become this, that, and whatever, and they're going to become Marxist or you know? <laughs> talk about it. <laughs> so that's a thing that can happen to the older people that you don't know what sacrifices we went through to build you something really great. You know? yep. Okay. But, but that's a real thing. It's just also not real. It's real in the sense it's, it's felt it's not real in the sense of that's not necessarily what's happening right now. You know? Wow. I, I have to say that what you just said, I wish I could sort of take over every phone, every TV, every media outlet and blare that because what you just said was so affirming we have to affirm people, right? And we have to sort of uh, draw them out and connect with them. We have to connect before you correct. And so I just so appreciate that. What is the, on the other side, some of the fear that you see in the younger generation? Um, most of the, when I, I'm going to uh, narrow this to under 30 for this uh, first response, but under 30 is that they just won't have a seat at the table. Mm. They won't be heard. They're not babies. They're not kids. They're not children in any way, shape, or form. They all have uh, education, pretty much, or they've already built some experience. They read books. They're wise, uh, sometimes beyond their years because they grew up in the church and they've seen a lot and so forth. Not one of them that I've talked to, specifically in all of my interviews, want to control anything. They just want their perspectives to be heard. And, but then again, they can get irrational too, because mm-hmm. their, their perspective is actually wanted, but there is a uh, disconnect. We talk past each other sometimes. Mm-hmm. We haven't learned how to have that conversation, you know? So they become irrational and then they put their feelings out in the internet sometimes, you know? Mm-hmm. And we didn't have that luxury back in my day. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I would say that's those are the two that they they want to be heard. They don't feel like they are, and they're drawing the conclusion they're not and going to other outlets. But I think success in the future will be intergenerational, interdisciplinary, multicultural, and maybe even multinational approaches to things. And 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 we're not going to land all in the same place because we necessarily don't need to. And here's why. Even in the New Testament, if you look at the five major regions between Judea, Syria, Asia Minor, Greece, and Rome, they had five different ecclesiologies. They, they weren't all doing everything the same way. But in another sense, they thought together. Mm. You know, And so I think if we have all these intergenerational, interdisciplinary, uh, multinational, you know, all this kind of stuff, doesn't mean we're going to all exactly think the same way. But if we can think together uh, and learn how to do that across those differences, I think we have a prosperous future. I think you're, I think you're dead on. And I, I'll just say as a younger, well, you know, I'll be what 38 this year. I would say that I am someone who um, I find myself in the generation of being a bit of like the glue. What I mean by that is um, I really appreciate the um, builder generation tremendously. And I want to get everything I can get from you guys. Cause the way I look at it is one day we're really going to miss our spiritual mothers and fathers. And I look at your generation and you guys have, you guys have lost most of them. 
And when you don't really have, when you just have peers, but you don't have like sort of parents in the faith, there, there's a shift there. And I, from family therapy, I'm a marriage and family therapist. And so I think systemically there is a grief and a loss when, you know, at some point you don't have that anymore. And I think my generation will at some point experience that. I mean, we're going to bury our, our mothers and fathers, but also spiritually. And it's, we're all we're going to have is each other. Yeah. And so I'm both, I want to be as close as I can to your generation as possible. Um, because as I look at the end of Deuteronomy, specifically when you've got Moses and Joshua there, God tells Moses, hey, here's what's going to happen when the people move into the land. Well, interestingly enough, Joshua was right there. He heard it all. And so what I, I, don't, I don't believe that God gives all of it to one generation or the other. Right. I think he gives puzzle pieces to both. <laughs> right, right. We need to connect. And, and then, you know, as a younger person, um, I'm starting to understand your concept of the pathway. Pathway is you've got to find something that is integrated and something that is, um, it's based in reality. But I think the baby boomer, boomer generation culturally, they need tangible. Um, I think some of our world now is very abstract and so forth. But the baby boomer generation, I have realized in order to be successful with them, um, is to be more concrete. Yeah. I think the challenge can be in the, in the older generation is people can be overly concrete, right? right. People can kind of have a personality where it's uh, a little too goal-directed yeah. um, or results-based um, instead of just being action-guiding. And so I just think, you know, like you said, baptisms are not the rubric. That's not the final sort of analysis on how things work. Right. Um, and so I just, I love the both I want to ask you this next question because gifts and roles are where I see a ton of tension and conflict roles in the church and spiritual gifts being used. Um, let me ask you a question. And again, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot and you can be as surface and brief as you want when it comes to appointing elders and teachers, and you could say deacons if you wanted to, what are what are some of the what have been some of the challenges when it comes to uh, appointing elders and teachers? Wow, uh, and those are like very different categories, and so my answer will probably be very different. But um, I I'm involved in a couple consultations where I use a paper that I wrote on processes for uh, developing elderships and so forth, and one of the things is across, the, there's a continuum of what, how we view the prescriptive versus descriptive aspects of what the qualifications of an elder are, okay. like believing children. And there's like, you know, different views of what that means, but there's also different practices to how to engage that. So I think if you are really, really conservative and the tightest metric you possibly could be on that, you're not going to appoint very many elders. And I don't think that's the essence of what Paul was talking about. Like, Okay, this fine tooth, here's the rule, here's the boxes that need to be checked. He's describing the gist. And even in the gist, there's always going to be nuances to get a full look at that. So churches are starting to get better about, okay, seeing those nuances in their identifying future candidates. On the other end of the continuum are people that just totally dismiss the children of the family altogether. And I've noticed a pattern in my consultations that the lowest standard uh, elderships when it comes to believing children have a lot more problems. Wow. Okay. The highest standard has too few elders and people not being shepherded. Mm. 
And so I just think we got to constantly, you know, unpack it, look at it over and over and over again, and uh, include those. And I'm glad you mentioned deacons because not all deacons become elders, but these are people that put their arms around the church, provide services, meet needs, hold the mysteries of the faith with a, a pure and deep conscience. And they are often those who become the future elders. And I think a more flourishing understanding of deacons can aid us in putting our arms around the church and shepherding, but also help us have a bigger uh, list of people to pick for future elders. So that would be about as deep as I would go on that topic right yeah. now. Um, with teachers, we got attention. I was even on a call today, Kyle, about this. We've got two different kinds of teachers. We have the expert in exegesis, history, intertestament, Old Testament. Uh, it could be, you can name so many places of expertise, but they don't have the gift of leadership. They don't have the gift of big picture. And they may not have the gift of understanding pastoring or evangelism very well, but the role that they play is wonderful. And then we have this other kind of teacher that is really a church builder. They think in terms of theology to strengthen the church, to lay a foundation, to think long view, how to live your life in such a way that you can handle the ebbs and flows and the winds and waves of life and to really get them rooted in on some of the basics. And they're great communicators, great trainers. But the problem is, Kyle, and this, I'm just going to put it out there, this is not politically correct, is that we have way too many evangelists that are threatened by that kind of a teacher. Wow. Okay, because that kind of a teacher will be as opinionated as the evangelist, and we need opinionated evangelists and teachers. Otherwise, they have no business being there, okay? But when a teacher has a strong opinion, teacher evangelists kind of get put off. And of course, there should be great decorum and respect and carefulness about how we do these things. But sometimes teachers have an insight as to why the churches are stuck and what's being produced by the theology that comes out of the mouth of the evangelist. And if evangelists would create a seat for a church building teacher, mm. they could become a great partnership because a church building teacher doesn't have the gift of the church building evangelist who's good with strategy and is good with scaling and making plans and so forth. And we need each other. Frankly, I don't know anybody's got it all. I don't even know anybody's got anywhere near it all, but uh, so what we have are teach evangelists that just kind of don't even have room to talk about teachers. I literally listened to a 53 minute audio presentation from an evangelist talking about evangelists, elders, teachers, deacon, women, and like board members. And 33% of it was on the teaching role and it was disparaging. Oh, why? Because I think he might be threatened. And so I, I, I don't think we should be playing games with this. We got to get the elephant in the room, the sacred cows, the naked emperors out in front, okay, to say it's time we build churches with all the biblical roles, deacons as well. We find ways to, uh, in the very least, give women's influence a much stronger place in the lives of the thinking of the church and the men, regardless of where we fall on the continuum of, you know, 
egalitarian, complementarian. We can do still so much better regardless. And I think if we can do that, what I'm talking about, um, getting all these roles out there, people being in the right seat on the right place of the ship, according to how an objective person sees us or, a, or our community sees us, our community can be objective to see us so that we are in the right role. I think we can do great things, but we can't if a few people control the throttle just because they're an evangelist. I do not see that in the New Testament. I, I, I don't think you, uh, it would be hard to describe to you how well you have in, in, in overwhelmingly answered my questions. I, I, these are the types of things that uh, I, I look for ways to reflect on the issue, not just ways to just say, okay, let's name the, the problem. I look for ways that help us to systemically, you, you, you just have to understand how systemic your thinking is so healthy and encouraging. And I, I, literally, I could do a podcast just on this last question with you. And part of it is, as I have sort of grown and so forth, uh, I definitely see myself as more of a pastor teacher. And what I mean by that is uh, someone who I have the gift of, of healing and shepherding. And, and, and that's, I mean, it is what it is. I, I can't sort of deprogram that. Um, I will never see myself as a, an evangelist per, per se. But I, at times, have thought, well, maybe I got to go through the evangelist funnel and then, you know, I can sort of, and, and so for me, it's it, what I've accepted from the Lord is, um, hey, be what you are and then sh make it easier for an evangelist to do what they do. My goal is to make it easier for deacons, elders, whoever, evangelists, especially to do their job, to make it right. easier for the members, not just the ministers to do their job. And that's part of the teaching and the healing that, that I'm doing with trauma. And if we can sort of really address trauma. Cause I think, I think trauma shapes theology and then you end up with a trauma shaped theology. Yeah, absolutely. And so now part of what we're dealing with is okay. Trauma has put people in survival mode in terms of their, their hermeneutic. In other words, we want to have a hermeneutic that's therapeutic. However, part of what shapes someone's hermeneutic is that trauma and, and, and many times unresolved trauma, unlamented trauma, unprocessed trauma, Trauma that doesn't have a space because this person's on staff or whatever. And I, I lament for many evangelists who, and we have, we've built our movement on the back of evangelists and I want to honor them every chance I get. And my goal is not to, to return the ears of the men, of the members back to the evangelists, but, but to the ministers and ministers yeah. is like the composite, the mosaic of leadership, right. which is, Hey, we've got, what God set in motion and he did it for a reason. He didn't just one, one off and, and so forth. It's like, Hey, this was in scripture for a reason. Paul saw fit to make sure that people understood this. And so right. I'm, I'm really, I can't, you know, it's amazing. This is just a Testament. We got somebody in your generation and my generation, and we are on the same wavelength yeah. right now. Yeah. And I just think this is a, a, a moment of testimony because it, it, it just, we, there's this divide that I think has been overestimated <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in the wrong ways. I, I think it's there and I think it's horrible and I think it's real and, and you know, sort of pervasive, but th these intersects, you're in my generation. We, we can really talk, man. We can do some amazing stuff. Let me ask you, as we get ready to end, is there anything that you are about to do uh, any projects you've got coming up that you just feel like you're really passionate about and you kind of want to put a pitch out there for? 
Well, uh, I want to comment on the last thing you said. Please, about please. It. So Kyle, you specifically with your understanding of trauma, I've been moved every single time I've heard what you bring. What, you're, what you bring is also affects our conversations about justice and race, uh, what has happened to, uh, you know, speak about trauma. I think a lot of evangelists uh, were affected by the trauma of 03. Oh. I think what you bring is special, unique. You are on the front of the radar of the teacher service team in our churches because of the specialty you have. It is a niche that is timely, that is needed. And I want you to know that you are appreciated in a wider community than you probably even know. Mm -hmm. um, and so continue to do your work because I think it's really, really great. Uh, what am I doing specifically? Uh, okay, so I work about 60% of my time with the Disciples Center for Education. And we are the people that the backers financially and the schemers along with the teacher service team for the Teleos Journal. I really made the recent event, the Let Justice Roll event even happen. Um, we, we are just so like fired up. I know it sounds like a teenage word, but fired <laughs> up about infusing resources into the next generation. Our bigger reason that we came together, and it was a conversation October 2019 near Atlanta with a bunch of uh, wealthy people, dreamers, schemers, teachers, about how we can identify people that are future scholars mm -hmm. and help them, those specifically has got their masters and MDivs and prove themselves with rigor to go on and get their PhDs. But we're not thinking US centric, we're thinking globally. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, we developed this concept in January of 2020. We launched the Disciple Center for Education. And then we launched the Teleos Journal, but we were then trying to figure out who, how do we figure out who our scholars are? And so we've come up with our algorithm, but one of the things our goal is, is to put people around the globe to meet an ATS accredited level of certification with a PhD, that's the highest uh, standard or the equivalent in parts of the world that don't have that. Um, so we've got 31 applicants. It started last October up until now. And of the 31, we've identified four that we're certain of. We still have to work out some of the variables, but we're certain of. We're looking for the next four. And then even with the rest of the 31, some of them can come in later as they continue because many applied without having quite the background. They weren't done with their masters or whatever. But we already got... Uh, non-US, three of ours are non-US. Wow. The four. We got a woman, we got people of different races, and we want, ultimately, we want this to be a, a global entity. Now, the downside of, of what people are starting to realize is most of our applicants are white males mm. in the US. So we're not trying to have, it's not a meritocracy we had as many people that meet these boxes just on the scholastics. No, no, we want to scaffold the movement from men, women, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, European, Ukrainian, uh, South American, the whole bit. And so, and then uh, along 10 different disciplines where a PhD will be important in our fellowship of churches with the idea that they will be trainers of trainers in their regions, working with pillar churches or mission societies and so forth. Um, so it's super, super exciting. 
but even for those who don't meet the criteria, we are going to create it. We're creating an ecosystem to make sure that mentoring's there, connectivity, communication, and so forth. So that's 60% of what I do. Wow. The other 40% are my clients. And my biggest project over the last couple of years has been the Los Angeles church. I'm a bit delayed on my final phase of that project, but it's basically called the resiliency system. We want to get the LA church in a place that what we call anything can happen. Anything could be, of course, like a pandemic. It could be a major social event. It could be a me too mo moment where a, an evangelist is accused of sinfulness or abuse of some sort. Um, it could be a sudden opportunity, a, a, a downfall of a ton of funds for doing something cool. It could be a brand new idea that's never been considered before. But what we want to do is we're hoping to create the, the uh, nervous system in the church mm -hmm. that everybody's connected. We have the right people for the right situation with the right disciplines and the right training. And we, we've created the model. And then we did training that was last summer. Now the last stage, which will be this year, is creating training modules so that in a church of 6,000, there could be 100, there could be 200 or more people that understand risk management, conflict management, upstream thinking, how to respond to allegations that are people that are really good with money and resources, um, a meritocracy system for best ideas win, all this kind of stuff, negotiation, collaboration, our modules uh, will be done sometime this year. And then we can uh, put this information, these training sessions outside of the LA church, but it's a very exciting project. So, Oh, I'm, I'm elated. And what's cool is just how God always has plans to make sure that um, his kingdom develops appropriately and properly. It's just, that cannot be stopped. God will always move someone's heart. God is always changing the desires of a person's heart. And I just love that God has really molded the desires of both generations. Specifically, I'm grateful. And I want to continue for people to know how grateful I am to your generation, to you, Steve, for building. And you guys, um, I think we're able to do something that God wanted. He wanted to, I think, inspire the evangelical world. And I think he used you guys in a very powerful way. And I think at different levels, you guys subscribed to whatever it was, um, whether it was healthy or unhealthy. But I, what I most respect about you and your generation is how resilient so many of you are. I mean, so many of the builders are still around and they are, they're Ezekiel's, right? You know, even for exiled folks and so forth, you guys are, you guys are Jeremiah's and I appreciate you so much. And I appreciate you coming on today. I appreciate you joining us and blessing us. I will go back probably at least two to three times and listen to this for me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm, I'm a, I just cannot wait. And um, I'm probably, it's going to be longer, but I'm, I think I'm just leave it long because you know what? It's so rich and I okay. want to thank you so much for today. Okay. Th there's more that I would have covered, but I, it has gone long. People should read that are younger. Four things I often get asked by Gen Y and Gen Z Christians. It answers the questions of what are nudges? What do they look like? What are some possible? So go in there and look at that. And that'd be great. I'll make sure I put some stuff down in the description for this video. Real quick, everybody, thank you so much for hanging with us. If you have stuck with us throughout the entire video to this point, I want to thank you for being um, 
journers, sojourners with us. And I hope that this blessed you and I hope that you got what you needed. And Steve, I just want to say that we are with you and God is for you, my brother. Thank you very much. What an honor.